I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 335, The Sin of Blood. Last time, we heard about the arraignment and trial of some of those suspected of murdering the courtier, Thomas Overbury. We talked about literacy and then we mused. We stroked our chins and wondered, how did the news get out about the scandal? Or indeed, did it so? Further than the strict confines of the court, of course. Well, first of all, It is worth remembering that there were those physical facts of all the trials, and as we have seen, they were madly popular, filling the scaffolding erected for the King's Bench in Westminster Hall and the Guildhall. Cook reported that Monson's arraignment at the Guildhall was delayed because the court was so pestered with multitudes of people as we could not get to our place, nor our necessary officers have any room for reading of confessions and testimonies nor the witnesses to come in. When the Countess of Somerset was arraigned, ticket sales were fierce. John Chamberlain wrote that prices for space at Westminster Hall at this time were grown to so extraordinary a rate that four or five pieces, as they call them, was an ordinary price. And I know a lawyer that had agreed to give £10 for himself and his wife for the two days. Without wanting to spoil the plot, there will be executions as well, famously an opportunity for public spectacle. No doubt, of course, the people that crammed into the halls talked and gossiped and spread the news. But the fact that the trials and executions were observed by so many also fed the news machine, such as it existed at that point. What sort of network was there, I hear you ask? Good question, I'm glad you asked it. Well, in the early 17th century, London was the nation's chief producer of political news. News was in the very bones of the place, the very water of the place. In 1631, Sir Thomas Barrington wrote home to Mum that He that treads or trolls over London stones cannot but hear the echo of news from their very sound. Now, people would gather and gossip at public events, but another recognisable figure had also emerged by this time, the newsmonger. Barnaby Rich was an English author and soldier, and he noted that the newsmonger would frequent fairs, markets and other places of assembly. Sometimes he'd stumble into the barber shop, but about ten of the clock in the forenoon, you may hit upon him in the middle walk of Paul's. But from eleven o'clock he will not miss the exchange. 
There appeared to be four centres of news gathering in London. The Court, St Paul's, The Exchange and Westminster Hall. You might need to know about Paul's Walk, I suppose, for fun, as I feel myself disappearing under another layer of digression. It was, in fact, the nave of the old St Paul's Cathedral, the one before Wren produced the current Baroque version. People went there not necessarily to worship in God's house, but to pick up the goss. Regulars were called Paul's Walkers. It was the place to be. It was the fashion of those times, and did so continue until these times, for the principal gentry, lords, courtiers, and men of all professions, not merely mechanic, to meet in Paul's church by eleven, and walk in the middle aisle until twelve, and after dinner from three until six, during which times some discoursed on business, others of news. Part of the reasons why Paul's Walk became such a centre was that it was close to a centre of English publishing, Paternoster Row, and so a growing hive of books, pamphlets, newsprints were easily available. And so it remained for centuries until the Luftwaffe had a pop at it and late-stage capitalism finished the job properly with one of the legions of hideous soulless developments for which the City of London was famous in pursuit of mammon. For which pursuit, I suppose, I should also be thankful since they effectively subsidise a substantial proportion of the entire country's tax bill. But it would have been nice for some things to survive as well. Oh well, I shall continue to cry into my local cask ale. Anyone who was anyone would walk up and down Paul's Walk, and if you happened to be trying to cut a dash, it was a good opportunity to deck yourself out in ribbons and bows, and wherever gallants and money gathered to gossip, there would of course be a cloud of opportunists to boot. The place was infested with beggars and thieves, and it was a great place not only to pick up gossip, but also prostitutes. It drove monarchs up the wall. Both Mary and Elizabeth legislated against people who went there for business other than gods. But frankly, my dear, neither should have bothered. James was more sensible and did not bother, but he was well aware of what was going on there. Those gathering at Paul's, the courts and inns of courts and the new and old exchanges were the smarter set. There were other gathering places, though, of a more heterogeneous nature. We're talking markets, fairs, shops and taverns, and the ordinary. At which, blast and confound it, I must digress again and explain that an ordinary was a dining establishment where meals were provided at a fixed price. Or, in fact, you might have a room within a bigger establishment which was set aside and called an ordinary where such a service was provided. Ordinaries were attended by a wide range of people. Thomas Powell referred snootly to the unwholesome air of an eightpenny ordinary in 1631. There were more expensive ordinaries, though, where men and women of fashion went, and where dinner was usually followed by gambling. So the term often became synonymous with a gambling house. The term ordinary made it across the US of A, I believe, and survived rather longer into the 19th century in the South. Anyway, Decker described the ordinary as the very exchange for news out of all countries, the only bookseller shop for conference of the best editions. Simmons' Jews recorded hearing about the daily and exact relations of the murder trials we were talking about. The Overbury trials were on every lip in the metropolis. 
So how or did that news get from the metropolis to the country? It is first of all true to say that London did not have a wall designed to keep the rabble from Watford Gap services at bay. There was a constant flow of people to and from the capital of all kinds of folks. Gentry on legal business, maybe, scholars coming for term time, vagrants coming for work, so on. There were also travelling merchants, and the Chapman was part of the lifeblood of news and gossip spreading out from the capital and back, like the in and out of air into a massive set of national lungs. You might know, but just in case you don't, a Chapman was the name for a travelling merchant in early modern England. The word is of ancient use, though, from Old English chiap, for business or market, a bit like Cheapside in London, the site of the market of the City of London. The venomous bead uses the term as it happens, and you can't have a provenance finer than the venomous himself. A chapman was usually like, like a peddler, though it could possibly perhaps also be larger scale, a merchant. But usually they travelled from place to place, market to market, rural fair to rural fair, selling their wares, setting up booths at local events. And probably the chapman who generated the best crowds and business, a bit like Del Boy on a Saturday at the Packham Market, would be the one that bought gossip, news, made people laugh and look forward to their next visit. And as it turned out, the toasters didn't actually work, of course. One historian described chapmen as living in the capillaries of the culture, bridging the roles of retailer, distributor and salesperson without pressure to judge. The better the chapman knew his wares, the more he could teach his audiences to enjoy them, the better they'd sell. Chapman became very much associated with products called chapbooks. These were small format, cheapish books. Chapbook is the modern term, actually. At the time, they might be called small books or penny books or Chapman's books. Their heyday will come rather later, actually, but they were a commercial endeavour, basically, so peeps would call them vulgaria. I was rather delighted to see that the art of self-deprecation as a comedic tool was alive and kicking back in the 17th century in the promotion of chapbooks. So there's a 17th century piece of very Douglas Adams hitchhiker-style humour in one bit of selling copy of a chapbook, which described it as a halfpenny worth full of jokes for a penny. Very good, like Douglas's trilogy in four parts. Despite their cheapness, chapbooks were built to last, and so probably for the most part they were passed from person to person, from family to family, they did the rounds. They were folk tales, history, children's stories in the main, rather than political goss. But often the chapman might perform part of the story before selling them. Chapman had to be showman too. So I have this image of Chapman maybe performing a little like Tom Hanks in that excellent film News of the World, telling the news or telling the story in front of an adoring audience, though maybe less formally. And Chapman might also bring with them pamphlets. And now pamphlets were a very different proposition. Very poor production quality, of indeterminate length, ephemeral, polemical, maybe political, sensational, crime, love, fame, disaster. Now those might bring news of the goings-on in the capital, at courts and at court. One of the ways proper historians have of understanding the kind of news that reached different parts of the country are various surviving commonplace books. 
This is a thoroughly cute concept, a concept so cute that I almost wish that print and digital media had never been invented so I could have kept one. The origin of the term lies in the idea of common and linked themes, so it might be something which followed a religious theme filled with religious proverbs with notes and thoughts attached to them. Or it might have a political theme, or farming notes, or a sort of personal almanac, or it might be several of those themes within one set of covers. They were essentially scrapbooks of interesting information kept and carefully, lovingly maintained by families and passed on from generation to generation. By the end of the 17th century, it was all a very recognised art. There were courses on maintaining a good commonplace book. So, these commonplace books, sometimes like those belonging to William Davenport of Bramall in Cheshire, give us an idea of what people were finding interesting and copying into their commonplace books. Davenport has several documents relating to the Overbury affair, so the information was for sure reaching Cheshire. One of the things he transcribes are letters from London. The personal letter was a key way of getting information. I mean, imagine you are a magnate forced to sit there in the tiresome, rustic and backwards old provinces, darling, carrying out your local responsibility in offices, painfully, painfully conscious that there might be some event or political plot which you're missing out on. You are consumed with FOMO. And as my mother tells me, letter writing used to be so important. Normally that precedes various expressions of regret about the modern world, sometimes all wrapped up about the youth of today, and are there any chocolates left? I'm making it up, actually. She always knows where the chocolates are. Anyway, we were talking about magnates getting FOMO. So, needing absolutely to keep in touch. They often employed secretaries to keep them in touch. Unbeknownst to you, for example, I have given you John Chamberlain's opinion of Paul's walk. Well, he knew so much of that because Ralph Winwood, one of the patriotic faction at court, had been sent abroad on diplomatic duty and was desperate for news from home. And John Chamberlain was the man he chose to provide it for him. And he wrote to Ralph regularly. So these newsletters are the original newsletters. They're personal letters with the latest news, literally. But we stand on the cusp of this activity becoming commercialised. From the 1620s, some people take a look at what these secretaries are doing and think, mm, ah, I see a gap in the market, because that's, of course, what people tend to say at moments like these. And they start producing regular newsletters for groups of people for a fee. But already by the time of the Overbury affair, just a few years before, these secretaries' letters, or parts of them, get shared. Or people just write to their friends and understand that they will be passed around. So in Davenport's commonplace book, he had transcribed three letters from London about the affair, the original of which he then probably passed on, and also he had six critical libels about the Countess, which we'll come to in a moment. He also has a letter about the affair sent to him by a kinsman, but he notes that it came from an original letter sent by someone else. So these letters, formal and informal, are getting passed around. And then folks created their own networks of shared interests, like a WhatsApp group. So Nehemiah Wallington, the London Puritan artisan, circulated material within national and international Puritan communities. 
Catholic recusants had their networks for the circulation of devotional materials, newsletters and politico-religious comment. So the Overbury scandal was connected to the regions through a network of overlapping groups that made the affair a national scandal. There were other types of publication that also got into the news bloodstream. A variety of formats, from pamphlets to legal documents, letters read out in court and, most importantly, trial reports. People did love their trial reports. Davenport had two such about the Overbury affair in his commonplace book. These had been popular since well before the Overbury scandal. Sir Walter Raleigh's trial in 1603, for example, had produced a surge of them. Lawyers were very used to taking records of trials, and given the voracious interest in such things, there may well already have been commercial services available. There are other examples that survived from the time, though. One manuscript, for example, consists of two letters by Francis Howard at the end of a pamphlet called Discourse of the Poisonings of Sir Thomas Overbury. A further and more popular source of information for public consumption, I believe we have touched on a couple of times before, the libel, acerbic, often vicious poems, which in this case were mainly directed at the Zamorazats. Libels came from a range of sources, and it's sometimes difficult to know from where. They might have been done from courtiers or from groups of folks in the pub. What's particularly powerful about libels during the Tudor and early Stuart period, though, is that they are a very rare route to the voice of the normally unheard, the relatively powerless. Although, of course, the story of protest, as we discussed in the parish episodes, shows that no one was ever so powerless as to have no agency or way of registering protest at all. But the libel was a very good way of doing it. Some of them are simply personal and bitter. So, let me give you William Poole, an astrologer, who took revenge on a JP and left a verse and another mm, gift, shall we say, on the JP's gravestone after his death. Here lieth Sir Thomas J, knight, who being dead, I upon his grave did shite. It's got to be said not necessarily talking high art here, but it was, you know, pithy. Although the social status of the libel authors are difficult to trace, it is certain that you didn't need to be able to read or write to produce them, just possessed of what Lord Melchett described as Baldrick's ready native wit, because you would be able to find a pot poet, someone who could produce what you needed in the pub for payment in kind or something like that. Libels, of course, circulated through non-commercial networks, so some of them were short, pithy and therefore memorable and easy to repeat, and wouldn't even need to be written down. Others were longer, but could easily be scrawled on a bit of paper and copied multiple times. Some libels were also written as ballads and set to familiar tunes. One of the libels on the Overbury case was called There Was an Old Lad Who Rode on an Old Pad, which is not polite, which was apparently set to the tune of Whoop, Do Me No Harm, Goodman or to the tune, The Clean Country Ways. Obviously, they're not chart-toppers these days, but here's a quick sample I found for you. (laughs) 
Well, that was nice. Now, shall we have some more? Well, no, 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 maybe not. Got to get on. But very pleasant. I can imagine having a sing-song along to that in the local. Very catchy. Anyway, having a libel set to a catchy, well-known tune, of course, really helped its dissemination. I mean, after all, we all like a good sing-song, do we not? Do we not? And not just because people would join in and sing along, but also because they might get picked up by travelling musicians, ballad singers, fiddlers, minstrels, who'd visit fairs and markets. The thing is, people also like a bit of dirt to liven up their market and their visit there. And so, a little bit of political stirring might well get the crowd gathering around, especially if you were taking a pop at the high, mighty and generally untouchable to whom you might well be tired of tugging the forelock. So, one contemporary remarked that when a fiddler gets some songs or sonnets patched up with ribaldry or interlarded with anything against the state, they are main helps to him, and he will adventure to sing them, though they cost them a whipping for his labour. Two great words there I should note. Ribaldry, always a classic, but interlarded. Now that's a new one to me. Where has that word been all my life and it will immediately be added to my regular vocab. I shall interlard it into my words. Ballads and libels might be circulated in manuscript form too, sometimes slipped into the back of a respectable looking publication. The Mills and Boons and your Book of Common Prayers approach. You might find anagrams to boot because your early modern citizen did love a riddle. So, Car finds a whore was one, apparently. It is apparently an anagram of Francis Howard, though, to be honest, how anyone decodes an anagram given the state of early modern spelling is quite beyond me. So, how far, then, did all this material reach? What seems clear enough is that most of the written material spoke to a mainly gentle audience. Gentlemen in the gentleman and gentlewoman sense, the gentry and nobility of the country. It's also clear that it spread out far from the capital, though, that the reports and newsletters and news networks reached out their tentacles throughout England. Now, there were clearly limits to how far this public debate reached down through the classes, so there are many who would say that this is simply an elite conversation that the wider public stood passively to look on, and certainly there's nothing of the intensity of the public sphere that came into existence later, through the Civil War and afterwards. There isn't the breadth and depth of involvement. And yet there are clearly elements of popular involvement, and equally signs that the government could not control it. The presence of libels, early pamphlets, trial reports and other separate materials could not be stopped spreading through Chapman and informal networks. As characters like Nehemiah Wallington demonstrate, some of those networks were not dominated by gentry but by artisans, especially those focused on religion, Protestantism, Puritanism and Catholicism. And the low levels of literacy was not as great an obstacle as you might think, and there are a few reasons for that. One is that as we have seen through libels, one popular form of producing the things was to go down the boozer and find someone who could read and write, and commit your clever verse to paper. The same approach could lead to libels and reports being read out in the alehouse or other public spaces for consumption by all, 
and ballads set to popular tunes help the debate and reaction to the great events spread. There is another interesting wrinkle. There were books created by the scandal specifically about the Overbury scandal. Books were clearly too expensive for ordinary folk to buy and most of them to read, and too complex to lend themselves to being read out in the alehouse before someone told you to put a hose in it or the village constable closed you down. But publishers obviously promoted their works, and so around London and maybe a few other cities, broadsheets would appear with images and woodcuts promoting the tales. Images of a sad, noble Thomas Overbury became very popular. Images of the gorgeously and beautifully dressed Earl and Countess of Somerset generated rather different reactions. And the court knew that they could not control all of this, and yet they tried, which indicates their worries about the importance of the emerging public debate. So, for example, they rushed into publication a book defending the decision to nullify the Essex marriage to Francis Howard, desperate to present their side of the story. Essentially, the great drama of the Overbury scandal was played out on a national stage and produced reactions and drove attitudes among a very wide range of people. So back to that concept of the public sphere then. Jürgen Habermas depicted the rise in the late 17th and 18th century of this new type of public. Private individuals in areas of public sociability outside of the control and supervision of the state where critical and rational discussion could take place of public political issues. And alongside that, the development of public opinion as a source of political authority. Now, it's clearly too early to make the claim that this is operating to that extent in Elizabethan and early Stuart England. But nonetheless, it is also clear that the state could not control the materials that reached quite a broad public now, that there was a response from that broader public, and that James's government was worried about the impact of this and tried to respond by promoting alternative interpretations and by controlling the message. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Right, so to the nub, at last, after 12,000 words of noodling. What was the impact of the Overbury scandal? How did people interpret what they were hearing here? And before doing that, we should probably establish a baseline, because I'm guessing as aged, tired, cynical 21st century citizens, you may assume that royal courts were always bound to be seen as sinks of corruption and elitism and hideous social inequality despised by the downtrodden masses. Well, there might well have been individuals that thought like that, but basically you're probably wrong to so assume on a general level at least. The court was, in brief, supposed to be the font of all virtue, composed of the brightest and most shining members of society who considered themselves and were considered an example of nobility and best values. Yep, no, really. Certainly, James thought so. Here he is in his own words. 
This glistening worldly glory of kings is given them by God to teach them to press so to glister and shine before their people in all works of sanctification and righteousness that their persons as bright lamps of godliness and virtue may, going in and out before their people, give light in all their steps. James expected the court and company of the king to be part of that shining, glistening example of virtue, for every one of the people will delight to follow the example of any of the courtiers. And he worried that so influential in society was the court that it would influence the people as well in evil as in good. The court therefore needed to be a place of virtue and order. In Webster's play The Duchess of Malfi, Antonio speaks of his expectations of what a proper court should be like. Considering duly that a prince's court is like a common fountain whence should flow pure silver drops. And the expectation of James's court had been set high before he arrived. One poet had predicted that James's court would be a church of saints. The courtier's only grace shall henceforth lie in learning, wisdom, valour, honesty. So look, people expected a lot from the court, a centre of authority of both formal, social and organisational, but also moral values. One of the historiographies of the Civil War will be that respect for the virtues of the court declines through the first half of the 17th century. This has been set in terms of a rather binary division between court and country, an approach which has been rather rejected or heavily modified as a model of late. But the public opinion of court remains very important. What may be nearer to the truth is that both court and country were idealised across the whole nation, each imbued with a set of values. The country was simple, honest, to return to fundamental virtues and good local governance by the great men of the region. The court was a shining example of grandeur, an example for society to follow. But gradually, the court began to fail to live up to this set of values. The way people interpreted the Overbury scandal was part of that fall from grace. So to think about this in a bit more depth, there may have been four ways in which different groups interpreted what they were hearing and seeing. Two of those values were traditional and broadly confined to the elites. The first, a set of values from the medieval honour culture, the value of social hierarchies, which was of course fundamental to the nobility's view of the way the world was ordered. Essentially, the way the world worked was that only the nobility were appropriate by their lineage, breeding and code of honour to control the workings of the state. The second overlay on that was one of civic values from the Renaissance in the classically educated elites. These values embedded the idea amongst the nobility that their function and responsibility was virtuously to guide public business. So, members of the court and social elite had watched in horror at the end of Elizabeth's reign how that upstart Cecil had brought low 
the noble Earl of Essex, a horror at the inversion of the social hierarchy. This reflects a story that we've heard many times before in the careers of the lowly but talented priests in the Middle Ages, all the way from Ranulf Flambar back in the far-off days of William Rufus. And in Robert Carr's rise, there is also something of the same discontent, a man from a pretty lowly background in the eyes of Summit Court. The ambition of Carr was part of a sense that the court was corrupting the proper honour code and sense of Renaissance values of public service and perverting the concept of selfless Renaissance public service by the elite. An epigram kind of summarised this attitude at the time. The word dite, in this following passage by the way, dite means adorned. When Carr in court first a page began, he swelled and swelled into a gentleman. And from gentleman and bravely dite, he swelled and swelled until he became a knight. At last, forgetting what he was at first, he swelled into an earl and then he burst. So for the social elites, the Overbury scandal was a sign that the values of the court were becoming corrupted by an inversion of the proper social order of things. A third way the audience might have interpreted events was much more broadly held in society's highly gendered and socially stratified concept of order and disorder, the patriarchal hierarchy and roles. Somerset's excesses and rise, the murders and trials, could be seen as a failing on the part of James to carry out his primary role as head of the household, the household of the court and indeed the household of the nation. In that role, he was entrusted by God with power to control the actions of others, as were all male heads of households. And so they were responsible for making sure their household behaved in a godly and virtuous manner. And in the excesses of this scandal, he clearly failed to do that. He had failed in his role as head of the household. Similarly, Somerset's excesses seem to demonstrate the lack of control expected of him as a patriarch and leader of society. And then there was Frances Howard's behaviour, the legal humiliation of her husband, the inversion of the sexual order. Woodcuts, paintings and broadsides emphasised her magnificence, wealth and status as far as the nobility were concerned, but equally, those images were interpreted by some as a flouting of gender roles. And of course, not forgetting her active agency in initiating a poisoning a particularly heinous crime in the early modern lexicon anyway, but initiating it, that was double trouble. Together, the images, reports and materials, all this, emphasised the transgressions of the court. Luxury, magnificence, excess, female pride, social inversion, lack of proper control. But probably the most powerful lens through which the scandal was viewed was, of course, religious. This terrible sin of murder was not a standalone act that happened from nowhere. The sin was itself a sign and result of other multiple sins and failings. Besides this sin of blood, there are divers others, which are accessories thereunto, wrote Thomas Tuke. It was simply one sign of transgressions and failings whose common origin was 
disobedience to the ministry of the word. For Thomas, in a gentle, light-hearted and teasing sort of way, the court's failings included the very stain of religion and the bane of human society as pride, ambition, witchcraft, whoredom. So that's all right then. A couple of things emerged through the whole process that made it all worse, if possible. And one of those was witchcraft. Let me take you briefly back to the beginning. In the annulment proceedings for Francis and Essex's marriage, there had been a basic misstep, a bad tactic that would work them woe. They agreed that, to save Essex's blushes, it should be asserted that Essex was impotent only with Francis Howard. Well, that rather begs the obvious question, why is that then? And to the early modern mind, the most obvious answer was not the cause of the internet or lack of attraction, but that Essex was the victim of witchcraft. And once you've made that connection, well maybe, of course, it must have been Francis who did it. And maybe she did not only bewitch Essex's John Thomas, but others as well. So, as a libeller had it, Francis, by spells, could make a frozen statue melt and dissolve with affection, and in an instant strike the factors dead that should pay duties to the marriage bed. At Anne Turner's trial, Francis had again been shown to be consorting with witches. Anne was in league with the devil, consorting with Simon Foreman. Franklin's reputation as a cunning man played up to that story too. Witchcraft led to a range of other noughties. Witchcraft could be linked to an inversion of the proper sexual order again, again transgressing the patriarchal norms of female obedience, subjection and propriety. The stain of evil spread to her lover Somerset to add to the accusations of social climbing and corrupt ambition. Here lies he that was once poor, then great, then rich, then loved a whore. He wooed, he wedded, but in conclusion, his love and his whore was his confusion. Finally, much of this was easily linked to the threat of a popish world plot, would you believe, just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water. Most things were so linked in Stuart England, to be honest. So poisoning was seen as a particularly popish tactic. Diabolic rites were seen as just another aspect of popish beliefs and ceremonies such as the Mass. The Puritan Thomas Cooper claimed that witchcraft was an especial prop of the Antichrist's kingdom. Even Cook excitedly thought he'd caught a whiff of a popish plot to bring about the death of Prince Henry, and news of that spread too, although gradually leaked away as evidence failed to appear. So, I guess we should now return to the procedural stuff, the trials of the Somersets. Before that, however, executions had taken place, gentle listeners, executions. Elwes died in an exemplary fashion, the way you're meant to die in early modern England, asking the crowd to forgive and pray for him. And Turner was also executed in an exemplary way, in a slightly different sense of the word exemplary. So, as an example to all. As an aside, there's a famous line, is there not, from a judge from the later days of the bloody code, 
where there was fury that a man was executed merely for stealing a horse, the judge loftily declared that men are not hanged for stealing horses, but that horses may not be stolen. Anne Turner was to be so executed so that women may not get out of line, and if they did, must submit to proper governance. So, Cook had ordered she be hanged at Tyburn in all her fancy dyed ruffs, evidence of her ambition and corruption that she'd brought to court. And it sort of worked. A bystander called John Castle wrote, I saw Mrs Turner die. If detestation of painted pride, lust, malice, powdered hair, yellow bands, and the rest of the wardrobe of court vanities... If deep sighs, tears, confessions, be signs and demonstrations of a blessed penitent, then I will tell you that this poor broken woman now enjoys the presence of her and our Redeemer. The point had been made. Anne had dutifully submitted in the way that women should, in the early modern mind, dying with true penitence and thus receiving forgiveness. The death of Weston and Franklin were far less satisfactory as far as the state was concerned. Somerset's friends reckoned that they could derail their mate's prosecution by getting Weston to deny his guilt on the scaffold and thereby undermine his conviction. This led to unruly scenes at the foot of the gallows as they tried to talk him into it, but in the end Weston refused to be used and refused to say anything at all. Franklin, though, was a bit of a nightmare. Franklin was determined not to die in a pious, resigned fashion. He refused to take communion and he scoffed at the idea that he might say his prayers. When he was at the hangman's side, he seized the noose from him and tried to put it round the hangman's neck instead, laughing as he did so. Ha ha! Before he was hanged, he also hinted at dark plots and stratagems and refused to make any public confession at all. It was almost unsatisfactory and messy. In 1616, then, finally, the Somersets came to trial. As they were nobility, they could be tried in a special court of their peers, the Court of the High Steward. And so instead of Edward Cook, they faced Francis Bacon. It was the Countess who faced the court first, on the 24th of May in Westminster Hall. She was pale. She trembled at hearing the name of Weston. She hid her face behind a fan as the evidence was presented against her. She was then asked to plead, and convinced of the hopelessness of her case, she pleaded guilty and was led back to the tower. The next day was the Earl's turn. And interestingly, he first tried the trick Edmund Blackadder would try in the Sudan, pretending to be ill and mad, not quite sure about the usage of underpants, pencils and the word wibble, but nonetheless he tried to pretend he was ill. None of it worked and he was produced before the court. Now the trouble was that although Bacon was thoroughly convinced of Somerset's guilt, the actual evidence, inconveniently enough, was skinny in the extreme. There was no firm evidence actually that he'd known about the plot, no evidence he'd been involved in administering or supplying poisons. And Somerset wasn't going down easily either. By the time he was able to make his defence, it was late in the evening, the sun was low, he was tired, and yet he conducted a robust defence. 
The weakness of his case was that he couldn't really provide an answer as to why Overbury had died, but also why he'd destroyed all those papers in a blue funk. He managed to present a good, powerful case to his peers, but in the end it was not enough, and the Lords found him guilty. The ball had now returned to James's court. Would he allow these two grand people, one of them his former favourite, to go to their deaths? For many weeks he dithered, and in fact, public expectation was on the side of their execution. James had, after all, pushed forward the investigation into Thomas Overbury's death, and he had let the trials proceed. He had, in the past, allowed the execution of one of his noble countrymen, the Catholic William Crichton, to go ahead. So people daily rushed to the tower, eager to see the execution, not to miss it, only to return disappointed. But in the end, James bottled it. Francis Howard was pardoned in July. James spoke of her noble birth, her penitence and confession, and noted she was not the principal, but the accessory only. Now, Somerset was still being stubborn and proclaiming his innocence, so the judgment was left hanging over his head, unresolved. However, he wasn't executed. Both were allowed to leave the Tower in 1622, and Somerset would finally receive a formal pardon in 1624. They duly retreated into obscurity, though Somerset would appear before the Star Chamber at one point in the future, but on a separate matter. Francis Howard died in 1632. Robert Carr didn't die until 1645. So, that was all rather long, sorry about that. Summing up, well, what a to-do. There's little doubt that the Overbury affair seriously affected the national perception of James and his court. After the affair, Thomas Overbury became a rather unlikely figure of the noble courtier victimised by his ruthless enemies. There's a lovely woodcut of him looking nice and pensive, a fine man ruined by the vicious court. The reputation of the court as a hotbed of papism was reinforced. Lewis Bailey delivered a sermon at St Martin's relating that Prince Henry before his death had said to him that religion lay a-bleeding and no marvel when divers councillors hear mass in the morning and then go to a court sermon and so on to council and then tell their wives what passes and they carry it to their Jesuits and confessors. The magnificence of the Countess's dress, once merely a sign of her wealth and greatness, became evidence of sexual licence, pride, ambition, and the reputation of the court duly suffered. Somerset himself was a base-born, ruthless powermonger. At the end, James had the chance in his hand to draw something of the venom from the scandal by delivering these people into justice. And the importance of delivering impartial justice was a central feature of kingship, and James knew it. And it had seemed that he had been about to show such judgment. And then he ruined it by allowing the two big fishes, as Weston had worried, if you remember, to escape the net. James's reputation as some sort of Solomon was badly damaged in the eyes of his subjects, along with the supposed virtues of his court. In 1625, when James had died, 
one John Rouse wrote, It was reported long ago, when the murder of Thomas Overbury was questioned, that he imprecated a curse upon him if actors were not severely dealt with. Yet, Somerset and his countess were spared of their lives. James believed that only God could judge kings. From the perspective of historians in the 1650s, after his son had lost his throne and his life, it appeared that God had indeed passed his judgment on James through the case of Thomas Overbury. And that, my friends, is finally it. The end. Fin. Fini. I shall be back, though sadly I have nothing else written as we speak, so I'm in a bit of a panic, I have to say. I hope to be back in a week or two, but who knows, who can tell, and indeed anyone for the last chock ice now. So, until we meet again on the cliffs of Dover or wherever, thank you for listening. Thanks very much for all your comments and all that. I do love to hear from you. Good luck and see you, well, sometime. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.